Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, a.k.a. J. Mace, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have an MC from the golden era of hip-hop. He put out his debut album in 1990 entitled Smooth Assassin, then hit you over the head with a lead pipe. See what I did there with his 1994 yeah. record. Then he did production work for Health to Skelter, Dies Effects, so on and so forth. Appearances with Positive K and the late great Big L. Ladies and gentlemen, give a round of applause for the one, the only, the comparable granddaddy IU. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Thank you for having me, yo. What's up with you? Not much. I appreciate you taking time out to do this interview with me. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you for having me. Uh, not a problem. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. So where did your love of hip-hop come from going up in Hempstead, Long Island? For those that don't know Hempstead, heavy hitters come from Hempstead. Eric Sadler from the Bomb Squad, Shirley Ralph, Dr. J, Buster Rhymes, Prodigy, Rest in Peace, and NBA veteran Speedy Claxton. And Method Man. Okay. All right. So, how did your love of hip hop come in, being it from Hempstead? Um, basically, you know what I'm saying. I, I got into hip hop back in the day before, before, um, before it got on. You know, rappers in light and all that. Before it got on the radio, before it, you know they put the records out, we had cassette tape from the battles back in the days of Cold Cross Four versus the Fantastic Five and. You know what I'm saying? Um, Grandmaster Flash and, and all the DJ battles, you know what I'm saying? Grand Wizard Theodore and all the early, you know, the the, the, the early joints, the cool herks and the bandballers and all that. And I, I fell in love with it automatically. All you know right. What I'm yeah, now was it around during this time where hip hop was slowly making its way from borough to borough or was it insulated based on your borough? Like Queens, the folks only heard what was going on in Queens and necessarily didn't know about the other DJs and crews that were popping in the other boroughs? Well, we only, well, in Hempstead, in Long Island, we didn't have a lot of DJs. We didn't have or no MCs. So when we had the, the, when we had the cold crush tapes and all that, we had to get them from uptown or we had to wait until they came and did a show in at one of our roller skating rings or something like that, or the Elks Club, you know what I'm saying? And get the tape from there. So, and then, then we started doing our thing because we didn't, we didn't have that at the at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we this was late. Yeah, so this is right around the time early hip hop, like, art jams, and then like you said, yeah, skater rinks, armories, ballrooms, pretty much anywhere where you could fit bodies, they were throwing hip hop parties in. Exactly, it's like 78, 79 mm-hmm. at this time. Right. So when I, when I I got hit to it, but they had they had been doing it some years previous to that, but I was too young, you know what I'm saying, to even hear about it before then. Right, so definitely got to give a big shout-out to the Pioneers, of course, like Cool Her, you mentioned Bambada, Jazzy J, Grand Wizard Theodore, uh, Pete DJ Flowers, Eddie Chiba, DJ Hollywood, Hollywood. Disco Twins. Disco Twins, they just was on my last live. I had to do a live a little while ago and they joined in. Shout out to them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely that. Gotta know where you're standing upon in the game. Now, when you first picked up your rhyme, was that MC that you kind of wanted to model yourself after, or were you just kind of just scribbling rhymes in the book and trying to find your own style? No, definitely. Spoonie G, 
and early Kumo D. And um and like anybody that was that was lyrical at the time, like DLB from the uh the Phillies Four, you know what I'm saying? He was like not for nothing, but he was like another Kumo D. Cause you know what I'm saying? Cause at that time he was one of the one of the first ones like putting together the big words and the multi-syllables and all that. But they they both was college students at that time. And the average, the average rapper wasn't. You know what I'm saying? So they had that one up on on everybody else. So that and the storytelling of Spoonie G. Right. That was viral. That that's what made me want to write. <laughs> right. And for those of you not young enough to know Kumo D, Google him. He got material upon material upon material. And then there's this battle that took place, I believe, at Harlem World with Busy B. And yeah. he ate Busy B. Because Busy B was more of a party MC do dip right so socialize clean out your ears open up your eyes eyes. but cool D was very lyrical like you said his vocabulary was very high and his voice commanded a presence you knew once Kumo D got on the mic he meant business exactly yeah busy B shout to busy B that's my man but Kumo D tore his ass up (laughs) on that one right there Mm -hmm. tore his ass yeah (laughs) Show his ass up. Right. And also during this time as well, you heard a lot of the latest hip hop records in what was called OJs, which was kind of like what Uber and Lyft right. are now. And right. you would want to get, let's say, Car 21 yeah, go. that had right. like the freshest tape. And you were lucky to hear it. And if you were brave enough, you tried to swipe it. But if you did, yeah. you was you was gonna have a problem. You did your research, huh? Yes, sir. You did your research. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, That's yes, what's sir. Up. I, I do my research. And also, during this time, a lot of the earlier mixtapes were on 8-track. I believe Hollywood had some of his early sets on 8-tracks. But when listening to DJ Hollywood, his style and sound of DJing was more affluent party uptown. It kind of gave me the same vibes whenever I heard an uptown record that was done by, rest in peace, Andre Harrell. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Damn, yo, you sh- you sharp, you sharp. I gotta give you yours. Yeah, you I, I, I appreciate, and I got the props like I'm a Black Moon. I got the props, you know what I'm saying? So, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 I try to make it two and two, you know what I'm saying? So, right. before you got signed to Cold Chilling, were there other labels in the bidding war, or were you just making no. homemade demos and just writing down the addresses off the back of the labels and sending demos? Nah, we made my, my brother dragged me to the studio, and we made two joints. You know what I'm saying? He was my brother. He was in college at the time, and yo, he was not a street dude. You know what I'm saying? And he was trying to give me the guidance to get me to stop fucking with the streets and go do music, but I was not trying to hit. And, you know, just it just so happened when he did get me in there, I liked it, this shit. I was like, this shit is all right. You know what I'm saying? And so we had we had made two demos and then um like maybe two months afterwards, <clears throat> this mark <clears throat> had got a production deal, a four artist production deal, but he didn't have the artist. So he was scrounging around trying to find artists to fulfill the deal and it just so happened he was he was cool. My man, this nigga named um, Jeff Spencer from Hempstead, and Jeff told him about me. 
and I got a deal just like that. So I didn't, I wasn't like going from label to label. It just kind of fell in my lap. Mm, so it's more kind of like networking, like, hey, I know this guy, he nice, and then you got put on that way. So what was it right. like once you got onto Cold Chilling, knowing the legacy of Cold Chilling with Marley Mall and Big Daddy Kane and everything that was pumping out of that label at the time, and it's still recognized worldwide to this day? Um, I was excited, you know what I'm saying? But when I got there, you know, like, we didn't have, like, videos at this time, a lot of videos, or matter of fact, we did have videos. My bad, we did have videos, but there was, we have social media, so you didn't know these people's personalities. You know what I'm saying? These people was like more like like a um, celebrity or something to you. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I don't embrace the concept of celebrity, but you know what I'm saying? That's what it was. So you're looking at these people like celebrities until you meet them. And realize that these motherfuckers are just like you. Everybody's just regular motherfuckers. There ain't nothing super spectacular about this person that is not, you know, nobody else has or can, you know what I'm saying, or can get. So when when I, once I started meeting other rappers, that kind of like like made me be humble. You know what I'm saying? That's 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 the, that's what I took from the whole that whole experience, like. Be humble because everybody's is regular people, you know what I'm saying? So when so so when people would come up to me like in awe and shit like that, I would tell them, yo, the shit that I'm doing, you could do the same thing, or or some other shit that's better than that. You know what I'm saying? So I know I know I went off topic, but no, 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 no. It's it's your time, it's your world, it's all good. So it's crazy how back during that time, regular and the celebrity would intermingle at various nightclubs, you know, like your rooftops, Disco Fever, Harlem World, and then uh, Latin Quarters. And if you went to Latin Quarters, you better be brave when you went in there and you better not oh, have yeah. on your fresh gear because you were going to get stomped out. Yes, yes, Brooklyn was in there. Oh, in, every, in every club, Brooklyn was in there deep with that robbery shit, with snatch and change shit. It, 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 it taking off your motherfucking leather bomb, take niggas take your chief can off, off your back. And you, it, it's so many motherfuckers, you ain't got nothing, you can't do nothing. Right. You know what I'm saying? If somebody snatch your chain and you look and study motherfuckers, what you gonna do? Right. You were just you gonna you be butt out. Yeah, you got your chain snatched, and that's what happened. Right. <laughs> and I also believe back during this time, there was a gang running in New York called the Decepticons. Can you tell me a little bit about the Decepticons? I, that was Brooklyn. I wasn't, you know what I'm saying? I'm from Long Island, so that's not, they, they didn't have nothing to do with where I was. Mm -hmm. All right. So tell me about the process of making your debut album and what was the setup like in the studio? And how did the sample come up to use I'm Your Puppet for something new? Oh, well... Actually, I heard that sample on uh, Nice and Smooth. They didn't use it for a shout out, but they chopped it in half. They didn't let the whole sample play, and they just, they didn't rhyme on it. They just used the shit to say, what's up to this one and that one and that one. So I was like, if they're not going to rhyme on this shit or use the whole four-bar phrase, I'm going to jack this shit. 
And that's what I did. And then we put, you know what I'm saying? My homegirls from the town, Desi, Razia, and Tony, you know what I'm saying? They came to the studio. We didn't know what the hook was going to be. Cool V start humming to say some shit to go along with the piano. Ding, ding, ding. Like, something new. You know what I'm saying? So that's how that shit came about. Mm, and this was also during the time, too, where it was the early stages of sampling, and it was kind of like, let's hope and pray that the song don't become a hit so that way they don't come out the rest and collect. Because as we all know, infamously, the story about uh, Biz Marquis and Alone Again Naturally, which was originally done by Gilbert O'Sullivan, once he yeah. found out that he got sampled, he was like, nope, you're going to pay me. I need a haircut album. Got yanked off the shelves. 850000 that, That's how much he was wanting for that sample. Yeah, that's how much he had to pay in the lawsuit. Wow. And like you said, and they snatched it off the off the shelf. So now not only do you gotta pay me eight hundred and fifty thousand, now you can't sell this shit no more and make no more money. Wow, that, that's crazy. So what I found crazy was at that time how they were able to chop the samples up and be so discreet about it to where it didn't catch the eye of whoever held the publishing of the song that was illegally sampled or unauthorizedly right. sampled. Because I'm sure James Brown had missed out on a whole lot of money before oh, yeah. sampling started becoming legit. Yeah, yeah. But, but guess what? You still can go back, you know what I'm saying, retroactively and get that money after I'm saying up to a certain time. So oh, I never I never knew that, that you could retroactively claim any lost money from samples. I never knew that. Yeah, your shit is your shit. Mm, that's so crazy. Yeah, this... Yeah, this, this 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 is why I heard that um the label was Tommy Boy was holding over um Dasif, da, 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 um De La, De La Soul. Yeah. Cause they didn't clear a lot of them samples back then. So they were saying that when they wanted to have get their masses and, and all that shit, like, nah, cause cause you didn't clear you didn't clear them samples. So we gotta pay to clear the shit. Whatever, whatever I don't I don't know how that worked out, but that was that was the leverage that they had mm. over them. Cra crazy, and I'll give you a little sidebar. I was listening to an interview with DJ Vlad that um, speech from Arrested Development did, and he was saying once Tennessee broke out, became a huge hit. It sampled Alphabet Street by Prince, and once Prince found out that he was being sampled in the record, he actually cut them a break where he was like, "I'm going to charge you a flat 100k and not the normal rate." And it wasn't until years later, once Speech realized that, oh, he did you all a favor, that it was like, yeah. okay, sampling is, is a legit business. So we got to make sure all the paperwork and we go through all the necessary channels to get it properly cleared. Only hunt that, yeah, he did him, he did him a, a, a solid right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because sampling really, is, 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 is no it's no joke. So, and it's print. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah, man, because um, I was surprised that um, Prince let MC Hammer sample When Does Cry for Prey, and when Hammer said that he played it for Prince, and Prince gave it the seal of his approval, which was rare because Prince rarely, you know, gives samples, and that's why it was shocking for me once Prince had passed that they released the remix to Bat Dance and couldn't find out Big Daddy Kane was on it, but that wasn't really a surprise looking at it because Cold Chillin' was also put out by Warner Brothers. Right, 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 right. 
A word I ain't know came was on um that shit was with um with Prince. Yeah, it was on the remix for Bat Dance. It came out not too long after Prince had passed, but the soundtrack was of course on Warner Brothers, I believe, because that was the film company that the Batman movie was out through. So it made totally right. perfect sense. So right. was there right. some regions in the country outside of the Northeast that you were surprised where you got a lot of reception? Like let's say the South, the Mid-Atlantic, Southwest or West Coast? Yeah, the South, Texas, I had a number one joint in Texas. Um, this is a recording. When that shit dropped, that shit was number one in Houston. And I was like, oh shit, word. Like, so you're, so you're getting heavy airplay on the box. Yeah, they showed me, they showed me mad love in Houston, man. Word up. Okay. Now, speaking of Houston, we can't skip over Houston without talking about the godfather that laid down the blueprint of Southern Rap, Jay Prince and Rap-A-Lot. Mm. Jay Prince still making moves. I just saw him on Drink, uh, Drink Champs the other day and shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw that. We got to pay homage to to the one that started it all for Southern Rap. And then, of course, we had Luke out of Miami with Luke Records and everything yeah, that came out of yeah. Memphis. Then the whole movement that came out of Atlanta. Right. With the, uh, what they call it now, the trap. Yeah, trap, you know, T.I., 2 Chain. So who, 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 who to you? So you from the South? Yeah, I'm from North Carolina originally. So who to you is the king of the South? Hmm, to me, the king of the South, that is a tough one. I'm going to have to go with T.I.P., T.I. His Libra album is banging, and I felt that it took a while for everybody outside the South to catch on to T.I., because I've been on them since I'm serious, but everybody didn't really catch on to T.I. outside of the Southern region until uh, trap music or urban legend, depending on when you came into the game. Hmm. Okay. See, I'm from you know I'm from New York, so to us, the king of the South is Scarface. Yeah, that the diary, dope record, dope album. Scarface was Scarface, Scarface is that nigga, yo. One of the best storytellers in the game. His albums, masterpieces, bar none. And then of course, as you mentioned, Jay Prince, rap a lot records once again. Right. Out of out of Houston, Texas, and then and also the longevity of you know what I'm saying his career too you know what i'm saying because he he been doing it from way back because when i started when i when i came to houston like i said because i had a joint i'm there i met them niggas there when they were together boys mm. you know what i'm saying so that's in my i my first shit was 90 so he at least got 30 years of the game because i got 30. Mm. all right so outside of houston were there any other spots like the midwest like detroit st louis or any places where you're like, man, this record is really taking off because it was also around this time where unless you were from New York and then of course, 91, 92, LA started bubbling nationwide, but it was primarily New York based where if it was, if you weren't from New York, it was hard to get airplay nationally on radio. Nah, everywhere we went, we was popping everywhere. So, I mean, just like I, I mentioned Houston because that, that was the first first scene when I dropped the first actual joint that this is a recording that was the, the place that I got the most love even over New York Wow! but then when something, when something new came out and Sugar Free and all that shit it was everywhere you know what I mean right 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 
Now, were there some records during the recording of the Smooth Assassin album that you had a chance to do, but ended up saying, nah, I'm going to save it for the sophomore album or just scrap it all together and it ended up becoming something for somebody else? Nah, we only scrapped like, I think, two joints and them shits ain't never surface again. <laughs> and one of them had my man trying to sing, but he ain't no singer and that shit was terrible. <laughs> now, who primarily handled most of the production on the debut album? Me and my brother. And 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 Cool V and DJ Doc was the overseer. Doc was the engineer. DJ Doc was the engineer for everybody shit back then. Everybody, like from APMD to whoever, whoever you can name. But Cool V is, you know. Biz DJ, he was the one in the studio. Biz was not in the studio. But he was the overseer. Mm, and if you don't know who Cool V is, look back at the video of the Vapors, or you can catch him on Have a Nice Day with Roxanne Shantae Roxanne on Shantae on XM. The, rock the Bell, rock, rock the Bell's radio. Yeah, definitely got to do that. And your Never process... Yeah, your process in the studio is more so where you got to hear the beat first and then write, or you go off, write first, hear the beat later, and then make your lyrics fit to the beat. No, I make my own beats for the most part. So I make the beat first, and whatever the, however the beat come out, whatever the beat, however it sounds, whatever the, the emotion or the mood of the beat dictates what I what I write. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a mood. It's like a feeling. You know what I'm saying? Certain beats make me want to write party shit. Certain beats make me want to write a girl, some some girl shit or a story or want to give you some some deep some, some shit from my experience in the hood. You know what I'm saying? It all you know it all depends on the music, the uh, the arrangements and the instrumentality of the beat. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Strings bring out like drama, emotion. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Horns, horns can make you want to fuck a nigga up. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know. Yeah, it, it varies. Now, what was your production setup of choice? Did you use a Insanique? Did you use a MPC? Or what was the equipment the, the, that you SP were using? The SP twelve hundred and the K nine fifty. That that was what I started with. That mm -hmm. was like that. That was like if you was New York hip hop or East Coast hip hop. That was the setup right there. The, the, the SP-1200 and the, the motherfucking, the Kai 950. That's what Pete Rock, uh, Lars Professor, all them niggas was using. Right. Law Finesse. Law Finesse is the one that taught me how to use that shit. Mm. And if you don't know who Law Finesse is, type in Digging in the, the Crates. Indeed. Definitely got to type in Digging the Crates. Now, jumping into Digging in the Crates, how did you end up on The Graveyard on Big L's album along with uh, Jay-Z, Party Artie, and Lord Finesse was on that record as well, correct? Right, right. How did you end up getting on that? Because um, at the time, we was on, Cochun had had that uh, distribution deal with um, Epic. And so we was in the Columbia, uh, the Sony building, and Big Big L had just signed with Columbia. So we in a building, and he and he saw me, you know what I'm saying? And he told his rep, like, "Yo, that's that nigga Granddaddy I you like that's one of my favorite rappers." So 
they was like, yo, he wanted, they introduced us and shit. He was like, yo, man, I, I want you to get on one, a joint with me and shit. I was like, all right, nothing, you know what I'm saying? It was, that's what it was. So he had, uh, we exchanged numbers and shit. So he called me one day, we're like, yo, can you come down to Power Play? You know, that was that was the studio that every all the motherfuckers was going to. That's me. And so, yeah, I went down there and we just knocked it out. Um, you know, Buck Wild had the beat. They gave everybody pen and pad. I think it was like six or seven of us. Everybody wrote they shit on the spot. I think everybody had his shit already, but everybody else had to write their shit on the spot and go in. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Buck Wild. Buck Wild part of Boot Camp Click, and you also did work. No, with him. no, he wasn't no. part of Boot Camp Click. He he D O C or D I T C. Digging in the crates, digging in the crates. Right now, Boot Camp Click was Helter Skelter. Now, tell me right. about your work with Helter Skelter. Yeah, I, I did. Um, I produced two joints on their um Magnum Force album and shit. I did the title the title track Magnum Falls and I did um Forget Me Nots. And how that how that came about, they was they was using the studio. My man had a studio out in Long Island and they was using my man Jake and my man Early B. So they was going to that studio and I come in there one day, they there. Like, oh shit. You know, I didn't know them, they ain't know me, but they we we knew who each other, you know. And at this time, I'm in another studio making beats. So when they found that I made beats, they wanted to listen to some shit. And they came and listened, picked out two joints automatically. And then the rest was history. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Boot Camp Clip, great collective, grimy New York hip hop. And also, you did work with DOS Effects. Now, I'm from North Carolina, but I'm 30 minutes away from Petersburg, Virginia. They went to Virginia State University. Now mm-hmm. they had day one effects. So how'd you end up linking up with Dodds Effects? Oh, because my man, Crazy Drazy, they used to stay out in Long Island. You know what I'm saying? And I'm from Long Island, of course, like you already know. And, you know, through mutual friends, we happened to link up. And he was like, you know, they was in between deals at the time. And so they was looking for, you know, for beats. So they heard I made beats. They came through, listened to a bunch of joints. They picked out what they wanted. And that's, you know what I mean? And that's what it was. But then me and him, we we, we started hanging out. And we became, we became cool. I don't know where he at now, but shout out to him wherever you at. Drazy, what up, my nigga? Salute. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that Method Man from Hempstead, correct? Yes, Terrace uh, Avenue. Okay, so did you end up hearing a lot of the early Woo stuff before End of the Woo came out, or were you just as surprised as everybody was when End of the Woo 36 Tampers dropped in Protect Your Neck? No, I didn't know. I didn't even know he was from Hempstead because he's younger than me. You know what I'm saying? I found out later on. I'm like, oh, shit. I, I doubted. I'm like, that nigga ain't from Hempstead. Sure enough, come out. Matter of fact, on my on my album right now, he start out, he start out the first line back on the hundred Terrace Ave, telling the story about being on Terrace Avenue in Hempstead. But um, yeah, um when when the Wu Tang came out, 
I was just as surprised as everybody else. I didn't even know because they was because uh, the Jizza was just on the label with me as the genius on Cold Chilling. His first album came out on Cold Chilling. That was when he had the Come Come Do Me record, right? Yeah, girl, come do me. Yeah, we went on. We went on promotional tour together, and he, um, A. Song was on tour with him. You know what I'm saying? Oh, dirty. He was one of his hype men. You know what I'm saying? And but they didn't have it. It was the Wu Tang at that time. So when it came out, it's a collective, and it's Wu Tang, and I seen the, the Jizza, and then. The fucking uh, oh dirty and I'm like oh shit this shit crazy and it was and it was totally different from the girl come do me shit right what I and found interesting shit. and crazy about Wu was that you had nine MCs all of them can spit but what was even more amazing was how Reza was able to go to see Rifkin over at Loud and say hey look you're not gonna have right of first refusal. We want nine separate solo deals on separate labels so that way we control our own career because I didn't know about RZA having that 12-inch deal with Tommy Boy until the documentary about Wu-Tang and then, of course, the Hulu series. See, I didn't know. But he, obviously, he was studying, you know what I'm saying? He was studying his business because that was the smartest move ever. The smartest move ever because imagine if they had the whole, the whole Wu sign solo deals all under one label that shit wouldn't come on man yeah and for those of you that, that don't know that what happens when a group signs to a label is that labels have what's called right of first refusal where if a member mm -hmm. leaves to go solo they have the option to put a solo record out on you that's what happened. yeah yeah because that's what mm -hmm. happened you know once bobby got voted out a new edition, MCA picked up the solo option and it paid dividends. Now, was it the same thing where with Buster, cause you know, Buster was with LONS, leaders of the new school. And then he had his star turn on the scenario remix. And then that led to his big legendary solo career and put out the banging album, ELE2. So was it where right. you never knew of Buster, even though it was from Hempstead by him being, no. you know, years younger? Nah, nah. I, me and Buster met at, at um five ten. That's the that's the studio um where Chuck D and them make they shit out of before he got on and shit. He but he not from Hempstead. He's from actually from Uniondale. The next town over. Mm. But um yeah, I, I knew Buster already before the shit he before he started popping and all that. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I say, cause he used to be at, down there at the Chuck and them studio. So he was down there kind of just, you know, hanging around and just kind of soaking yeah, up and just wanting to get his feet wet. They was, they was making demos and shit. They was making their shit. Mm, so this was L-O-N-S, Leaders of the New School. Yeah, before they came out, though. Okay, before just another case of that old P-Tape, before everybody knew of L-O-N-S. Wow, so this crazy how, you know, you're yeah. right around at this time when everybody was exploding. So what was the process for you going from the debut album and then the sophomore album, Lead Pipe, which came out in 94. What was the mindset going into the studio for your sophomore record? My mindset, my dad was just to change my shit up so I so I would stop motherfuckers from telling me I sound like Rakim. So that shit had got them under my skin so bad, I changed my whole style up because I'm like, I never saw it, you know what I'm saying? Like how, I, I still to this day don't see it, but everybody will say, Nigga, you came out sound like Rakim. 
because we we both got a deep voice. If you listen to songs, it ain't the flow, the, the cadence, nothing is the same. But that that was the shit that niggas was saying. And the shit got to me so bad where I switched my whole shit up on the lead pipe. And I ended up, if I, I don't, that's the, that is my, the, the shit that I like the least. That album. I don't even, I don't even recognize that album. My man's gonna be mad, be like, nah, that, album, that shit is good. But I'm like, nah, that wasn't me. You know what I'm saying? That was I was I should have just stuck to my stuck to the script, you know what I'm saying? Instead of letting that other shit bother me, fuck what these niggas is talking about. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And this was back in the days, people, where it was no biting allowed, where creativity was 100 percent at a premium, where you didn't want to come off sounding like the next Joe Smo. You wanted to be your own unique self, so you would lock yourself in a room or rehearsal studio and just rehearse, 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 rehearse. So by the time you got your deal and hit the stage, people knew that you were nothing to play with. Mm, exactly. Yeah, that you were nothing to play with at all. So also around this time, we mentioned earlier your production work with Helter Skelter, with Dyes Effects. So tell me about you linking up with Large Professor. If you don't know Large Professor, look up the main source Breaking Adams, we mentioned the SP-1200, Large Pro, a whiz yes, at the SP, and he's responsible for bringing Nasty Nas into the game on the main source record live at the barbecue with Joe Fatal, Akinelli, classic record. Yes, sir. Large Professor, extra P, shout out to my man, Paul. Um, I met Paul, you know what I'm saying, through Cold Chilling, because he was doing a lot of production work for um, Cool G Rap. Back in the days, I don't know, you know if if you know that, but you probably do because you obviously a hip hop historian. But um, yeah, he was doing a lot of production work for um Coogee Rat, so I met him there. But then later on, when I moved back to Queens to Rochdale, you know what I'm saying he was cool with my man Mikey D, and um, so we we connected again, and you like yo, I, I want to produce a joint for you, you know what I'm saying, and um. He played me some joints and I picked out one. I picked out this joint called um what was that shit called? A Mac of the Year. And that shit ended up being on my Stick to the Script album and shit. And then later on I I, I um I did a verse on his I, I forgot what the album was called, but it was me, him, and Mike Geronimo on a track called um Mac Don Ills on Lost Professor album. I think it was like maybe 2014, 13, or something like that. Okay. And like I said, Large Professor is known for the SP. Now, as far as programming the SP, what was the most difficult thing about it? Because this is right around during the time, once again, where sampling time was limited, and it was pretty much almost where, if you read the manual, it just gave you just enough basic, but it was all about trial and error where you had to figure out what works for you and your production style. Yeah, man, that shit was so frustrating trying to learn that shit because, you know, it only, like you said, it only got eight seconds total of the sampling time. So you got to speed up the fucking sample and then slow it back down. And once you slow it back down, you're like losing bit rate. So you're losing the quality of the shit. It's like, yeah, you had, and you had, you had to use your brain. Like you had to, study the record first before you sample it and know what parts to chop 
and put back together. You know what I'm saying? Chopping is like a science. It's like you gotta be surgical with that shit. You know what I'm saying? And so you can you can you can take that eight seconds if you know what you're doing and make a whole new shit like and you and even the motherfucker that made it don't even know recognize that this came from that if you know what you're doing right and it was crazy with a lot of the setups where before you would go to the major studio to put the finishing touches or the polish on it it was primarily at a home studio so to think about a lot of those early records that you know marley maul did that teddy riley did and how they were sonic and changing the landscape of music because i remember i was looking at a video about marley maul breaking down how he made the beat for make the music with your mouth and how right. he heard the show by Dougie fresh and slick rick and how he wanted to add a shaker to it because right. eddie had the shaker but because right. he couldn't get the shaker he had to do some make the music with his mouth literally with you know right. to get the shaker in there so it's just crazy to see how innovative a lot of these producers became with the limited resources that they had due to the limited yeah. technology of the day ingenuity you know what i'm saying you gotta you gotta make it happen with what you got mm. was there that- yeah now was there yeah. a producer that you really wanted to work with but for some reason you never had a chance to that you wish you really would have had a chance to work with. Yeah, man. Fucking um Premier, Pete Rock. Every time I see Pete Rock, yo, Pete Rock, where my beat, man. Come on, man. I got you. I got you. I got you. I ain't get that motherfucker yet. But it's all good. Well, yeah, Pete Rock, Premier, especially Premier. Um uh Timbo, Timbo, but you know I'm saying like he 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 more like R and B type of, but he got that shit that he right. you if if just like um I I want I would want some shit from Timbaland like um he well he gave Jay Z uh that that slow shit um it wasn't never was single um. Ah, damn. It was I an can't. album cut. Yeah. <laughs> you're hot, you're hot. Some shit, you know what I'm talking about? Mm, yeah, rock, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, like I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's crazy. And speaking of producers being more on the R&B tip, Target just did a commercial sample doing Mary J. Blige's Real Love. And the producers behind Real Love, of course, was Prince Marky D., and Corey right. Rooney. Now, a lot of people right. tend to look at Prince Marky D as only, oh, that's that guy from the Fat Boys. I'm like, no. Production-wise, he was yeah. nothing to play with. Him and Corey Rooney. Yeah, yeah exactly. And at the time, I remember, because believe it or not, they made that, they was making that shit at my, this dude named Ali, this Iranian cat named Ali, lived across the street from me in Hempstead at my mom's crib at this time. When before Mary, when they did when Marky D and them did that shit, and Marky D's uh Corey Rooney's brother brother in law, um, what is his name? He's a he's a writer. You know what I'm saying? They write R and B. I remember when they did that shit, and, and we had no idea that that shit was gonna be so fucking the crazy, you know what I'm saying? That shit took off the magnitude, the impact when that shit dropped was bananas but that shit they did that shit right across the street 
from that's, my mom. That's crazy in the way that they flipped Audio 2's top billing and how yes. they were able to mesh R&B and hip hop because, of course, we had right. Teddy meshing R&B and hip hop with New Jack Swing. And then, of course, we had Andre Harrell, everything that came out of Uptown. They were just taking hip hop break beats and having singers sing over them, like with Mary J, with yeah, Intro, C, and it had that edge. That right. hip-hop head's like, okay, I can get to it. Even though it was right. R&B, it had that hardness of hip-hop. Right. That's why they call her the, the queen of hip-hop soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long, as long as, you, long as you got hip-hop as the foundation, you can't go wrong. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier Rakim. Can you tell me about what was so monumental about Rakim? Because everybody looks at Rakim as that's when rap changed. Vocally, aesthetically, everything. Can you talk about the importance of Rakim and hip-hop? The lyricism that it always goes, to me, it always goes back to lyricism. That's the God MC. You hear the shit that he's saying, like, when, when somebody's saying some shit that you gotta think, as even as a rapper, you be like, damn, how the fuck did he think of that? You know what I'm saying? And it, 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 it's, it's me. When I, that's, I always listen to lyrics. But him, um, Coogee Rap, some Big Daddy Kane, but 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 the dope, the two to me, Rock him, Big Daddy Kane, there's his way be like, how in the fuck did he think of that? So back to your question, I think I think the the jazzy the shit that he was rapping on, you know what I'm saying, was like jazzy, his jazz is because he's he tell you that he was influenced by that. You know what I'm saying tremendously, but that that was a whole different, a whole different look on like, oh shit. And then the fucking the voice and back to the lyrics. Plus he was God by it, so he was dropping knowledge. You know what I'm saying? He dropping jewels on motherfuckers at the same time. Like, damn, nigga, he really doing it at the same time, giving you some some real shit, some stuff, fucking substance. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is right around, you know, we had the five percent nation, five percenters, right? And everybody right. was dropping jewels. So if you go back and listen to Rakim, listen to X-Clan, yeah. PE, Poor Righteous Teachers, they were kicking a lot of knowledge, you know, based yeah. off of the teachings of Grand Poobah, Grand Puba, Brand Nubian, off of the 5% Nation. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, that's... That, matter of fact, I wish they, they would bring that shit back right now, you know what I'm saying? Because everything has been so fucking dumbed down. It's like, Right. The message is gone. Message is right. fucked. The message that they send it right now is fucked up. Right, because it was a balance where you had your conscious hip hop, yeah, your gritty street hip hop, and then you had your pop hip hop, and it all meshed all together. And I think the right. one thing in golden era hip hop that I wish we would have gotten, but we never did, we never got a Native Tongues collaborative album. We got features on records, but never right. a full album with the whole Native Tongues ensemble. That would have been really dope. Yeah, but there's too many of them motherfuckers, though. That shit right. would have that shit would've had been a, a two, a two A double album. disc, a double disc, yeah. a double album, or a double cassette, and you probably had to pay at least 20 bucks at Camelot or whatever music store. Now, wow. also, yeah, now also during this time, too, I'm thinking about back in the days where if you really wanted to look fly, be fresh, you would go see Dapper Dan. Dapper yeah. Dan 
was yeah. the man. He had everybody want to rock his stuff. And it's good to see now how Gucci, a lot of these luxury brand fashion houses are saying we were wrong for ridiculing you, for lashing out at you, for taking our <laughs> wear and making it urban chic because they now know the value of the urban dollar and how much money that it brings. Yeah. <coughs> They've been making money of, of us forever. Forever. You know what I'm saying? And always and always you find out they don't want us wearing um wearing ain't shit. Like they, I don't know if it's real or not, but I heard that Timberland didn't want niggas wearing his boots. And you know what I'm saying? And and certain like high, high fucking top tier fucking uh fashion design like Gucci and Versace and niggas like that didn't didn't want us to wear their shit, but we still keep wearing that shit, just like um Chris Dow didn't want us having they fucking champagne in videos. Right. You know what I'm saying? We still we still do it, still give niggas the money and they still give us their ass to kiss, but right. But once you know, again, some- it goes back to being in those spaces where you don't have enough diverse voices in the room and saying no. They're making you money. They're going to help enhance your brand. And that's why it's important to have people in the room in these decision-making roles that understand and know the culture, not just wanting to profit off of it. Yeah. I mean, but even when even when you do have a diverse cast or a, a diverse board, or what I'm saying, in, 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 in the decision-making, motherfuckers be sellouts, man. You know what I'm saying? Motherfuckers be sellouts. So just because motherfuckers got the same skin color as you, a lot of times that don't mean that they got your best interest at all. folk ain't your kinfolk. Exactly, especially when it comes to that motherfucking, that check. Mm, Yeah, like what Divine Sounds would say, what people do do for money. Exactly. And that look how old that is. This shit goes back to the beginning of time. Right, 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 right. And you sold Jesus out. Y- yeah, man. L- like I said, you just got to watch yourself and kind of keep yourself on guard. Now, during this time, 94, you know, great time for New York. You know, Biggie about to come out ready to die. Then, of course, everything that was coming out West, the whole West Coast movement was a totally different vibe because New York's right. beats was very fast. Boom, boom, probably like 100 plus beat per, beats per minute. But once you heard a Dre production, it was very slow, melodic, because out West, it was a totally different vibe. Mm-hmm. Mm, so what yeah. was it like with the contrast in hearing, you know, your stuff like your keen tees, your two shorts, everything that was coming out of the West? Well, I like... I like music because I, I I grew up on all types of different music. So some of the music that was coming out of out of the West Coast, I was digging it. I was digging it, but I wasn't keen on the rappers. To me, the rappers wasn't lyric. You know I'm saying like they wasn't as tight as the niggas from the town. You know what I'm saying from New York. So I I, I didn't. I was sleeping on them because I think I think Ice Cube might have been. The first motherfucker that I was like, all right, these niggas is spitting. You know what I'm saying? But other than that, like I like because we we got we got easy E. I'm like, God bless the dead, but easy E, come on, son. That nigga wasn't no rapper. 
he was not he was not nice with the bars. He had, had bars, and his flow was offbeat and all that. And I'm not dissing him. You know what I'm saying? But it was like it was that type of shit that I was like, "Come on, son." So when I when I started here, um, I like I liked it. I liked it. Ice T because he was talking the gangster shit. You know what I'm saying? But it took me a while to, to really get the West Coast they props. Right. And of course we had Compton Most Wanted, MC eight, and everything. And then you MC mentioned eight night by man. Yeah. That, 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 spice that spice nigga. one. Right. Right. Um, yeah, you mentioned Ice Cube. Ice Cube came to New York to work with the Bomb Squad on America's Most yeah. Wanted. And it had that mm, that PE sound where it was aggressive in your face. And that shit was made right there in Hempstead at wow. 510 South Franklin Street, Hempstead, New York. They had ice cream in the town making the shit. Wow. That's crazy. That's what we do here at Beyond the Album Cover. We get exclusives. Now, 94, Illmatic comes out by Nas and then also Ready to Die by Biggie. So right. what was your take on hearing those two landmark albums and knowing that Nas is going to be a problem and Biggie was like, okay, this is this is something. I thought Nas was the most prolific shit ever. I was like, yo, holy mackerel. Because I used to see Nas at Coogee Rap Crib just sitting down, just writing, writing, writing all the time before he came out and shit, before the barbecue and all that shit. And so when I heard his album, though, I was like, yo, that Illmatic shit, that shit was, that shit was like mind blowing to me. Like that was, motherfuckers was, motherfuckers was, you know, doing hip hop, you know what I'm saying? Like from, from their, from their experience, from the hood, they was telling the sto their stories and their experiences, but nobody was that graphic with it and so vivid and poetic at the same time, the way he put it together was like, yo, this shit here was, was special. We knew, I knew it was special. Like, damn. And Biggie, Biggie, Biggie just like more the style than the, 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 the lyrics for me. It was more the style, the flow, the cadence. He was like the way he just danced on the beat, but saying the craziest, funniest shit. Like he's more, he's more witty to me but Nas was like that gritty, like this is this shit is real. This is this when you hear his shit, like this is what's really happening in the hood. Right, paints a pretty picture and Vivid album picture. King's Disease, one of my top rap albums of twenty twenty. What had me on that whole album? It was done flawlessly, top to bottom, production by a Hit Boy, and uh, was the track that he had with the Firm. He reunited the Firm on one of the tracks on Keen Disease. And I was like, oh man, you know, Foxy and AZ. AZ, people need to give AZ his flowers. Yeah, yeah, AZ is crazy. And and, and that's the, that is the one motherfucker that one time that I say Nas got bodied on his own shit, on fucking, um, you know, life's a bitch and then you die. Mm-hmm. I actually, I actually like AZ better than Nas, and that was the first time we ever hearing AZ. Wow, that's Man, the first time I guess everybody had him because, and I, but I was like, yo, after all this shit, I just fucking consumed listening to 
the fucking the Nash, the the Illmatic, and then when he gets to that, here come another motherfucker that I never heard of before. That body, the nigga that just blew me away with this shit. Like, imagine that. Right. Who who would have known? And also go back to the graveyard record with Big L. Jay-Z mm-hmm. was on that. Was this pre-reasonable doubt before yeah. him, Biggs, and Dame formed Rockefeller? Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was in that time when they was doing they when they was doing they shit. You know what I'm saying? When they was first doing it before they blew up. Mm-hmm. But they had a relationship. Mm. And then, Alan Jay. Yeah, yeah. And the and to see where Jay-Z is, you know, rap's first billionaire. And it's almost like when he comes out with something, you anticipate it because like him, Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, they don't be all out there like that. But when they right. do put out something, it speaks volumes because you rarely hear from them. They dictate to you, you don't dictate to them. Right. When you get to that level, you can do that. Just like, just like Beyonce, she could drop whatever she wants to at any time, two o'clock in the morning, without without no promotion, no no warning, and that shit is out of here. Right, right. And we gotta mention this guy right here, production on Reasonable Doubt, and he's from my neck of the woods, North Carolina, Ski Beats. His production mm. on Reasonable Doubt, Camp Low, Uptown Saturday right. Night, and Original oh, he's Flavor. He's actually from North Carolina? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, he's from Greensboro. Oh shit! All yeah. we thought he was from New York. No, nah, no, nah, he's from Greensboro because actually he was in this rap group called the Busy Boys, and a friend of mine used to be a dancer for that group when he was a kid. Um, rap name at the time was Will Ski. So for me, being from North Carolina, to see him come up, I'm like, okay, man, North Carolina, we're finally on the map, you know, because we had him, Joe to see Anthony Hamilton, and then to see now with J Cole, Rhapsody, and then of course we had Little Brother come out of North Carolina as well. Right. So it's good right. to see you know my home state as a whole really come on the scene and do well. Then you put out the album Pimp. Paper is my priority. What was the process going in there? And interesting name title, beautiful name title by the way. Paper is my priority. Right. That should be your motto in life, people. Paper is my priority all right yeah i mean that was just like i don't when i when i when i get ready some to make some music i don't like have a theme or nothing i just make what i make i just go according to whatever whatever the vibe dictates you know what i'm saying and then i when i when i feel like i got certain joints that are cohesive you know what i'm saying then I okay I round I say I don't uh, this this don't this don't match the batch this one matches you know what I'm saying and I put those songs together put the track, a, a track list that's it mm, it's, so it's insane. more of just go with the vibe let's yeah, see so what sits let's see what flows and if it don't flow take this out put this in and then whatever comes out comes out yeah it's just a, it's just a vibe I just go with the vibe mm, and that when, tends when, to be the best art. Yeah, because once when you when you trying to trying to focus on making a certain particular joint, like I think I think you take away from the 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 the, the genuine art, you know what I'm saying? Because it's supposed to be just from your heart, whatever you feeling at the time, you know what I'm saying? Or what you was not, not so much like okay, I want this to sound like this right here. I want to 
nah, man, just just fuck with it. See what you come up with, and then you build on top of that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier Coogee Rap. If you don't know Coogee Rap, folks, look him up. Coogee Rap, DJ Polo. Man, I first heard Coogee Rap. It was the Fast Life record that he had with Nas with samples. That's happy. the first time you heard Coogee Rap? Oh, gotta my God. Rem- gotta remember, with me being like five, six years old, when that era came out, I was going back and listening to that. But right. it had me sold on the Happy Sample by Surface. And mm-hmm. then going back and listening to his verse on Don't Curse, you know, with Heavy D, Rest in Peace, Pete Rock, CL Smooth, Big Daddy Kane, Q-Tip. His verse yeah. was just as hard, didn't even curse. And of course, everybody knows of Poison. And because of that song, you're eating right. good off of that because, you know, BBD sampled right. his vocal for Poison. And then, of course, Busta Rhymes sampled Poison on ELE2. So right. big shout out to Cool G Rap. Now, yes, was sir. there one MC you felt from doing that golden era that you felt was underrated, but because of maybe label not giving them enough attention, didn't really get the push that they should have? From that era, I would have to say Cool G Rap because, you know what I'm saying, even though we know it, Cool G Rap should have been big, just like whoever the whoever. Everybody mentioned it in their top five right now, from Rockin and Big Daddy Kane or whoever they mentioned, KRS-One, uh, Tupac, Biggie, whoever you can mention, they all are in some way connected to somebody that, that was influenced by Coogee Rap because Big Pun was heavily influenced by Big, Big uh, Coogee Rap. So many motherfuckers, me, you know what I'm saying? It's like, but you don't hear his name mentioned. If you say, if you ask motherfuckers who they top 10, they, he won't even probably be mentioned in the top 10. He should be way up there. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned Big Pun. I felt had Pun, you know, would have not tragically passed so soon. Pun would have would have been up in everybody's top 10, top five. Man. Pun was a, the Capital Punishment album. He's still, he's still making it in some people's top fives. To this day, he's still, he's still making it in certain certain people's. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Now, do you have any new projects coming out? Or anything that's out currently? Mm. Not musically. You know what I'm saying? Besides, you, if you know about The Essence, that's already out right now. That came out um, in July, to July 22nd. That's a compilation of me doing all the beats. I got... um. <clears throat> I got Lost Professor on it. I got Cool. I got Craig G on it. Uh, Rod Digger, Bumpy Knuckles, uh, Lil Fame from MOP, General Steel from Smith and Wesson. I got Sadat X. I got uh, Monifa, the singer. Um, I, just, I got a whole whole uh, uh, all star cast on there. It's called Granddaddy IU Presents the Essence. And it's mm. out on uh, every every digital platform right now. You know what I'm saying, and all that. You go to my Bandcamp, grand my granddaddyiu.bandcamp.com. You can get that. You can get all my up previous projects, and yeah. All right, definitely check all of that out. And what's your take on the current state of New York hip hop with a lot of the new young cats coming out of New York? Um, New York hip hop don't sound like New York hip hop. 
You know what I'm saying? Because everybody, they got niggas is doing the drill music, which is Chicago shit. You know what I'm saying? Niggas is doing the trap, which is, the, the, you know, the South shit. Everybody doing everything but New York shit, besides, uh, you know, Griselda. Griselda, you know, Billy Blanco and, and, and Conway and the niggas from, um, you know. Buffalo. Buffalo holding it down. You know what I mean? Pardon me, man. I've been drinking and nah, smoking. Nah, 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 nah. You good, you good, you good. It's all good. Yeah, yeah man, because, you know, me, when I think of NY Hip Hop, I think of that hard, gritty, makes you right. want to go, go get some Tim's and me mug. Right. And it, it just has a certain aesthetic because when you hear, let's say, a Down South record, you're going to hear a record that's a little bit more bouncy, a little bit more pep, a little bit more right. slang. And when you hear a West Coast record, it's going to be a little bit more laid back and chill because that's how it is. Our West. Each region has their right. own distinct that's flavor and distinct sound. Right. It's like, you know, uh, um, this, the, the Bay had the, the hyphy shit and you know, back in the days, you know, even still now, uh, DC got the go-go, <clears throat> the go-go shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it's like you said, Cali with the, with the G funk and all that is like New York had that the boom back, but that shit is gone, man. And and, and, and you know, my man Rock Marcy, um, and the Gazelda, you know what I'm saying? The boys, they are the ones that's keeping it alive. Mm-hmm. And I got to give a big shout out before we close this interview to my boy B Down from the org for putting us in touch and sending this interview up. So shout out to B Down and Clinton. Salute, salute, salute. You can catch that interview along with this interview on all streaming platforms for Beyond the Album Cover and on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash JA5. Now, do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap up this interview, Granddaddy IU? Um, just want to shout out, man, my brother Casey. You know what I'm saying? He the one that that got me to doing this shit. Uh, my man Easy Rake, rest in peace. Um, Shorty Shaw, be on the lookout for my man Shorty Shaw. John Jiggs, Inf the God, Marquee. That's it, man. My daughter Muffin. All right, there you have it, folks. Granddaddy IU on Beyond the Album Cover with your boy. Thank you so very much for taking the time and doing this interview. Appreciation.